welcome again to RUF. I know we've already welcomed you uh, two or three times by now, but um, uh, welcome again. Um, like I said earlier, my name is Chandler. I'm the campus minister. Uh, and what is RUF? Um, a lot of y'all are here for the first time, which is great. Uh, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are a community of people learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. Um, and the first thing we say is that we're a community. Uh, we are trying to build a, a group of friends who love one another, who care for each other, and who are asking questions about life and uh, different things like that together. We say that we're learning to love God. Uh, you may be here tonight and you have known Jesus for a long time and you love him and you are looking for a place to grow and be encouraged in your faith. I think RUF is a great place to do that. Maybe you're here tonight and you knew that you once believed, but college has been hard and you've got some questions and you don't know where you stand on stuff anymore. I think RUF is a great place to figure that out too. We want to be a safe place for you to uh, ask and answer those questions. Maybe you're here tonight and you are a complete and total skeptic, but you saw there's a CLW credit and this sounded better than Chapel or some other CLW you could have gotten. Great. I think it's a great place for you to be too. Because I think we have things that you're looking for, whether you realize that or not. And we say we're learning to love Carson Newman. We want to be present on campus. We want to make our campus a better place by going to stuff and having a good time and enjoying one another uh, in public spaces and just loving and embracing the place that God has planted us for the time he's planted us here. So that's who we are, and that's what we're doing, and, uh, and I'm really glad you're here. So... Um, a few weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine, another campus minister, had something pretty crazy happen at his church. Um, they have a few homeless people who regularly attend, and uh, some, of, some of these guys um, have uh, a lot of mental illness, a lot of things going on. And, and there's one guy in particular um, who, he's a regular church attender when he's on his medication, but when he's not, um, he's actually, uh, actually kind of dangerous to the people around him. He suffers from uh, pretty extreme bipolar, uh, schizophrenia, things like that. And so when he's not on his medication, the elders of the church um, have told him, hey, we, we, can't, we can't bring you to church. You know, we, we need to um, keep you safe. We need to keep other people safe. So, uh, so one Sunday he was not on his meds, and uh, the elders didn't pick him up. And so this homeless guy ends up walking uh, somewhere between 7 and 10 miles from a homeless shelter to the church. And he walks into the church during communion. And uh, the band is up there playing that song, uh, Goodness of God. You know, all my life you have been faith. That one. Um, they're singing that song, and this guy, awesome, uh, this, guy, this guy, this homeless guy walks up on stage, he grabs a bottle of communion wine, and he walks over to the cross and just double bird flips it off in front of everybody in the church. And here's my question for you tonight, and here's why I tell you that story, because I, I want you to consider whether or not you have a category in your prayer life and in your worship life for something like this. Now, I'm not telling you to go and like blaspheme the cross. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, how do you pray? How do you approach God when you feel miserable? When you're suffering? When maybe you're even on the brink of death, you feel abandoned and cut off, and your only place is to God, but you're pretty, your only place to turn is to God, but you're pretty sure that it's His fault. How do you pray in those moments? Do you pray in those moments? Is there anything that you can even muster up to say to God in those moments? And let's be honest, we all have those moments. 
right? We all have those times, those seasons in life where we feel this way. So what do you do? And I think we're invited to pray Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is what we call a lament psalm. Um, if, you, uh, if, if you're not aware, we're spending the rest of the semester going through, uh, going through the psalms. There's seven genres of them and kind of picked out a representative psalm uh, from each category. And uh, I was actually going to do a different lament psalm, but Josh was like, hey, will you do Psalm 88? And without reading it, I was like, sure, let's do it. Um, and now here we are. Uh, Sorry. But uh, no, no it's, it's, it's been amazing. Um, but a lament psalm is an invitation for you to bring your deepest hurts and longings to God. In lament, we are invited to bring our complaints to God, to be honest with Him about our frustrations, even if those frustrations are with Him. And, and, and they end up turning our hope back towards God. But the reason that Psalm 88 is such a difficult psalm, maybe the hardest of all of them, is that every other lament psalm features some appeal or turn back to hope. It turns back to something resembling a happy ending, or at least you can see the path to the happy ending from where the psalm ends, but not in Psalm 88. If you paid attention, Psalm 88 ends with the word darkness. So this is a hard psalm. It's a hard thing to think about. And before we dive into the actual content of this psalm, briefly, there, there's, there's kind of four ways that we approach suffering that I think are wrong ways. Um, the first way that we tend to approach suffering is that it's an illusion. It's not real. If we can just uh, have the right mindset, if we could just see things the right way, then, uh, then we'd see suffering for what it really is, and it, and it, and it wouldn't even be a thing. This really kind of comes out of a lot of Eastern religions and philosophies, but we've seen different ways that the church has kind of adopted this. All right, the second way that we think of this is we, uh, uh, we see that it's a result of weak faith. Right? This is where you might hear somebody say something like, just let go and let God. Or as the, uh, the Instagram account says, trust God, bro. Like, just, just trust God, bro. It's going to be fine. Just trust God, Right? And look, obviously trusting God is a good thing to do. Please trust God. I'm inviting you to do that. Um, big pro trust God guy here. Um, but, uh, but what's being communicated so much in this is that if you would just follow these steps, everything's going to be okay. You're going to fix the problem. Your faith is going to be stronger and it's going to go away. Or maybe, uh, maybe you've heard somebody say that if you suffer like this, it's because you're actually not a Christian. Because Christians never experience unanswered prayer. And to that, I would say, read Psalm 88. There's no evidence that God answers this prayer. We don't see anything from this passage that says that. Says that. And so, if you're struggling in this way, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. And then, and then the, the fourth one is, uh, is just the answer is that there are no answers. And we take comfort in there being no, somehow that comforts people. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand those people. If you are one of those people, I would love to talk to you about that. But um, just to get your perspective. Anyway, this psalm actually does give us some answers. It doesn't give us answers completely in their entirety, but we do get some. But it's also an invitation to remember when we suffer like this, when, when we can read the words of Psalm 88 and really resonate with what the psalmist is saying, remember this, that this psalm, though it is dark and though it is hard, it is a smaller part of a greater whole. And so while it may seem like at different seasons in life, while you may feel like uh, darkness has the last word, we trust that it doesn't. 
And so our responsibility as we examine Psalm 88 together tonight is to allow, allow it to breathe on its own and to experience the very real depths of hurt and despair that the psalmist writes with and not to minimize it in any way, but also to hold that intention with the fact that this psalm does not have the last word. That this is not all that there is to say. And I think there's a, a great example. We're getting close to Easter. I always think about this, like, like the, the phrase, uh, it's from a famous sermon, the, the phrase that it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Right? We, we've all heard that in, in one way or another. And that, like, that's a beautiful phrase. If you've ever heard the sermon, I think it's, uh, I want to say it's H.B. Charles that preached it. Listen to it. It's amazing. But I think that, that something that, that a phrase like that misses is that, yes, it may be Friday. And, yes, Sunday may be coming. But Saturday sucked. Like, Saturday was terrible. And, 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 and imagine the disciples, the followers of Jesus who thought, this is the guy who makes everything in our lives make sense, and he's dead. Put yourself on Holy Saturday. Put yourself there tonight as we look at Psalm 88. So, to the psalm. We see in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist begins with an appeal. And this is pretty standard stuff for a psalm. And it actually opens on a really high note. The psalmist says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to me. And what we take away from this, the first thing is that we talk a lot in general about prayer anyway. Right? Like, like we, we go to a Christian school. We love prayer. We talk about prayer all the time. Prayer is awesome. Prayer is wonderful. Like we've had entire chapel services about prayer. I saw an Instagram reel because I'm old and don't go on TikTok where this girl was like, you're not really a Christian if you listen to secular music and don't go into your prayer room every day. I'm like, okay, like I, I don't, we don't have a prayer room, but I guess by her standards, I'm not really a Christian, but that's not the point. We love prayer. We love to talk about prayer. We love to talk about prayers. It's something we should do. And if you, if somebody's like, Hey, how's your prayer life? Oh, it's great. It's awesome. I was Praying like two seconds ago, like you interrupted it. Leave me alone. Like, don't ask any more questions. But have you ever stopped to ask why? Not why should I pray? Because the Bible tells you to. That's why you should pray. But why should God listen to my prayer? Why should God hear me? Why should he have anything to do with the words that I say? And here's why. God listens because he listens. Like, there's nothing about you. There's nothing that you bring to the table. God listens because that's just who he is. He is a God who has promised us that he will listen to us. He will hear us. He's a God who bows down to hear his people, to connect with them, to meet with them on their level. The second thing I think we need to take away from this is this is a really good way to start prayer when you don't know how to pray. Because again, we've all been there. We've all been in these times where we have no idea how to even bring our words to God. So you just start off by saying, hey, God, listen. <laughs> that's what the psalmist do. And that's what he calls us to do. God, please listen to me and then start talking. And you don't have to pray with the right words. You don't have to pray in the right like emotional mindset or whatever. It doesn't have to be artful or in a certain order. It just begins with simply asking God to please listen to me and then tell him what's on your heart. And this works, especially with lament, because um, one scholar says this. He says, maybe rather than playing church and make-believe, 
A vital dimension of the spiritual journey is giving God an earful now and then. Maybe God can handle it. Maybe God likes it because it means that we are being real and not fake. That lament is an invitation to be honest with God about how you feel. And you don't have to pretend like it's something else. And the third thing that's important here is that while it may seem insignificant, uh, the psalmist addresses God by his covenant name and acknowledges that he is the God of salvation. So there is some form of, of, of tenderness and relationship and connection there, even if it feels distant. And so when we're dealing with this question of how do we pray when things seem hopeless, start there. Just say to God, God, please listen to me. Please hear me. And then tell him what's on your heart. But then in verses 3 through 12, the psalmist begins to build an argument. And the psalmist works his way through a list of reasons why he needs God to listen. And they're pretty bleak reasons. But before we get into any of that, um, notice the lack of specificity with any of this. right? Some of the psalms, we know exactly why they were written. We know exactly who wrote them, under what circumstance, and what they were trying to do. Right, like if you read, um, if you go and you read Psalm fifty-one, Psalm fifty-one, we know is the psalm that David wrote as he was repenting over his sin with Bathsheba. And a lot of psalms have that same kind of information, but this one doesn't. We don't know why it was written. We don't know what purpose it was to be sung. We have no idea. And so it's possible. There's some evidence here that maybe the psalmist is dealing with a a chronic illness that has lasted his entire life. And he's stretched to the point of giving up. Maybe he's dealing with uh, a broken family situation that there's no hope or no resolve for. He has no idea what's going on. Maybe he's dealing with a particular sin that has caused him to come to the brink of despair. The fact is we don't know. And I actually think that that ambiguity is beautiful. Because the point is that if you resonate with this at all, then you get it. It doesn't matter why, if you've ever been stretched to the point that you feel this way, then you understand this psalm. But here's his argument. He's miserable. He says, my soul is full of troubles. He's lonely. His companions are cut off. He is the object of God's wrath. He, and, and, and he feels like he is as good as dead. And I want you to think about this. How bold of a prayer is this? Have you ever prayed a prayer this bold? That God, everything in my life is falling apart. Everything is terrible. I would be better off dead. And I'm telling you to your face that it's your fault. Do you even begin to have the capacity to think about talking to God that way? And yet, that's what the psalmist is doing. And there's this, there's this idea that floats around out there that, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. Or, uh, or stated differently, like God gives us hardest battles to his strongest warriors or whatever, which... Okay, Um, these sound great, except for the fact that they're wrong. And if somebody's told you that, they might have meant well, but they were lying to you. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I have one foot in the grave and you are pushing me in further. And we're tempted to think of this stuff as if God just has nothing to do with it. As if he's just sitting on the sideline and he's like, he's wishing he could help, but like he needs you to like do or say the right thing. Or like he just maybe doesn't have any power over suffering at all. He's just not able to help. Um, My uh, seminary professor and friend, Ligon Duncan, says this. He says, that's not what the psalmist says. This psalmist knows that God is sovereign. 
Uh, you know, isn't it interesting that never once does Job entertain the thought that God is not in control of his life? In fact, the whole wrestling of the book of Job is precisely because Job knows that God is in control of his life. And he wants to know, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Nowhere does Job get comfort from the thought, oh, I didn't realize that you're not in control, God. And say what you will about this psalmist, he never starts spouting drivel like that. He never tries to find comfort from saying, oh, I understand now God's not in control. This isn't his fault. He'd like to help me if he could. No, over and over, the psalmist acknowledges that God is in charge. And his message in verses 3 through 9, Lord, you don't know the troubles I've seen. I'm like a dead man and you've put me here. And what's crazier about all of this is that this is in the book of songs that Israel was supposed to sing in worship. Like when they went to church, they were supposed to sing this. When was the last time you heard a worship song that comes anywhere as close to as depressing as this? Right? Like everything we hear is like, Jesus is my boyfriend. I'm alive. Everything is great. Like whatever. (laughs) What if we sang this song in worship one day? What if, we th- what if we sang this song in chapel one Tuesday morning? Dan Allender's a counselor. Um, he says this. He says, the person who hears your lament and far more bears your lament against them, paradoxically, is someone you deeply, wildly trust. It is the paradox that opens the heart to unfathomable rest. To sing a lament against God in worship reveals far, far greater trust than to sing a jingle about how happy we are and how much we trust him. That to be able to honestly pray something like this actually shows that you trust God to depths that you probably didn't realize you did before. See, Psalm 88, despite its deep sadness and its despair, it leans on God's sovereignty and control in a way that few of us realize. In Job 1, after losing everything, Job is able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, there, there's, a, there's a song that repeats that in the bridge. And like when it came out, like, I don't know, like 25 years ago when I was in college. Um, I'm old. Um, but uh, no, I went in college 25 years ago. Anyway, that's not important. Um, but but, 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 but we, we sang that song, right? You know the chorus, you give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Somebody actually called our church and said, hey, y'all can't sing that. Because like, why would you ever think that God like takes away? Because it's in the Bible. Like, that's why we think that, right? For many of us, the thought of God being sovereign, even in our sufferings, is offensive. But y'all, this is an invitation. Because even in your sufferings, even in your hardships in life, throw those things at the mercy of God, even His sovereignty. It's an invitation to talk to God, maybe in a way that you never thought you could. To say, God, I'm sad, I'm hurting, I have every reason to be, so please listen to me. He's not asking you to forget about the pain. He's not asking you to forget about the suffering. He's asking you to bring it to him. And finally, we see the depths of the anguish in verses 13 through 18. And honestly, as I was looking through this, I was trying to come up with, with a way to say this. And uh, there's a guy there's a guy named Sufjan Stevens. He's a... Uh, Singer songwriter, um, and he has this he has this beautiful and just tragically sad song uh, called Casimir Pulaski Day. I highly recommend you checking it out. Um, but in this song, he tells the story of his childhood friend who gets cancer, 
and their kids, and she's sick, and he sings about their relationship. And then he says, uh, in the song, he says, Tuesday night at the Bible study, we lift our hands and we pray over your body, but nothing ever happens. And then he goes on to talk about life, and, uh, and then eventually his friend dies, and the, and the song ends this way. He says, in the morning when you finally go, and the nurse runs in with her head hung low, and the cardinal hits the window. In the morning in the winter shade on the 1st of March on the holiday, I thought I saw you breathing. All the glory that the Lord has made and the complications when I see his face in the morning in the window. And the last line of the song is all the glory when he took our place. But he took my shoulders and he shook my face. And he takes and he takes and he takes. It kind of feels like the end of Psalm 88 to me. Right? We prayed. We cried out to you. We longed for an answer and we got nothing. We are right back to where we started. God, why didn't you answer us? Where are you? Where is the hope? And we're left with this word at the end of the psalm, darkness. Uh, Shai Held, who is a, a Jewish theologian, um, he actually suggests that the ending of the psalm uh, could be rendered more like this. You've caused everyone to shun me, period, pause, darkness. It's like uh, the beginning of uh, uh, the sound of silence, right? Hello, darkness, my old friend. Right? I'm back. Here we are again. And that's it. That's the psalm. That God, please listen to me. I'm suffering. I'm alone. I'm as good as dead. It's your fault. I keep crying out and nothing. Darkness. Like that's Psalm 88 in a nutshell. So what in the world do we do with this? How do we, how do we move forward? How do we do anything with this? And y'all, I, I um, so last week we had a guest preacher and the week before that was spring break. I've been thinking about nothing but Psalm 88 for like a month. <laughs> um, it's not been great. <laughs> It's been really hard to study. And Charles Spurgeon uh, once said something to the effect of every passage should have a direct path to Jesus. And if it doesn't, then jump the hedge and get to the path. And on the surface, I feel like we have to jump several hedges to get there from here. But before we see Jesus in this psalm, and he is here, I want us to consider a couple of things. The first thing that I want us to see is that this psalm is an invitation to see the world as it is. That we don't have to come up with some uh, overly romanticized, glossed over view of the world. But we can accept it for what it is. The absolute fact of the matter is that sometimes life is hard. And there is no resolution. There are situations in life where we will pray and we will pray and we will pray and it will seem like nothing will happen. And experiencing these things is not a sign that you have weak faith. It is not a sign that you have an insincere faith. It is not a sign that you're not actually a believer or anything like that. It honestly just means that you're human. And it's normal. And we all feel this way sometimes. Second, this is an invitation to lean into God's sovereignty even when it's hard. Um, In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when uh, the Pevensey children first come into Narnia, uh, what does Lewis say about it? It's always winter, but it's never, right. It's always winter, but it's never Christmas. You ever feel that way? 
You ever feel like in your own heart that it's just cold and miserable and there's no hope of like good stuff coming? I love, um, I love the Avett brothers and they have this song called Winter in My Heart and they, they put it this way. They say, they say flowers bloom in spring, red and gold and blue and pink. They say seasons turn in time. Theirs are changing. Why won't mine? And again, I would just ask you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever maybe been stuck in a season of a long period of time where you can't help but feel that way all the time? See, the hard part about God being God is that we are not guaranteed answers. Like we said this before, like the Bible never promises us perfect airtight answers for everything we experience in life. And we're commanded to trust him despite that. But all that being said, this is an invitation to remember that we don't pray this psalm thousands of years before Christ as the psalmist wrote it. So we know the answers to the questions in verses 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Y'all, if the answer to these questions are no, then walk out of here and never pick up a Bible again. Don't do it. Because this offers you no hope. But, this psalm is not all there is. Because God has answered those questions by saying, yes, in fact, I do work wonders for the dead. In fact, the departed do rise up to praise me. Yes, in fact, my steadfast love is declared in the grave and beyond, and my wonders are known in the darkness. In fact, John 1 tells us that the darkness does not and cannot have the last word. That when Christ comes, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, cannot ever overcome it. That this is an invitation to see that while the darkness may be the last word in this psalm, The cross and the empty tomb tell us that darkness can never have the last word in your life. It can't. It won't. I'll close with this story of one of my favorite hymn writers, a man named William Cooper. He was born in 1731. His mother died when he was six years old. And he battled depression his entire life. Cooper tried to commit suicide multiple times. And, uh, and he finally, he finally did uh, pass away from an illness in 1800. And he wrote this at 21 before he became a Christian. Uh, he said, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can, at least, uh, can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. I presently lost relish for those studies to which before I had been closely attached. The classics... I had no longer any charms for me. I had need of something more salutary than amusement, but I had not one to direct me where to find it. And again, I would just ask, have you been there? Have you been so lost in despair that all of a sudden your schoolwork or your job, which you used to love, be passionate about, you're excited about your major at one point, now it means nothing. It gives you nothing. Your favorite books, video games, TV shows, movies, whatever, you try to... You try to you know, cheer yourself up with those and it just doesn't work. You, you know you need something more than entertainment, but you have no clue where to begin to look for it. 
But hey, like that was before Cooper's conversion, right? So we hear the testimonies, right? Like I was sad, I was depressed, and then I met Jesus, and now everything's great, and this is wonderful. And, you know, like nobody ever gives the microphone during testimony time to the person whose story doesn't have a happy ending. Cooper did become a Christian in 1764 while he was a resident of St. Albans Insane Asylum. And he went on to write poems and hymns, and he became one of the great hymn writers of church history. So surely his life got better, right? Listen to what John Newton, another famous hymn writer, said at Cooper's funeral in 1800. He said Cooper could give comfort, though he could not receive any himself. He was not only a comfort to me, but a blessing to the affectionate poor people among whom I then lived. He used frequently to visit them and pray with them. I had the honor to be rector over a set of poor, plain people, chiefly lace makers. Their great confinement caused in them great depression of spirits. They used to say, oh, sir, if I was right, sure, I should not feel so. But they well knew Mr. Cooper, and they knew he was right, and from him they could take comfort. I've had hopes that the Lord would remove this malady a little, uh, a little time before his death, but it continued. The last 12 hours of his life, he did not speak nor seem to take notice of anything but lay in a state of apparent insensibility. But I seem to think that while the curtains were taking down and the tabernacle removing, glory broke in upon his soul. The Lord had set his seal upon him, and though he had not seen him, he had grace to love him. He was one of those who came out of great tribulation. He suffered much here for 27 years, but eternity is long enough to make amends for all. For what is all he endured in this life when compared with that which rest remains for the children of God? See, Newton and Cooper had become close friends, and even at his funeral, Newton was talking about how, like, this dude was just depressed. His whole life was misery. He talked about the depths of Cooper's suffering, and yet his faith persisted. See, Cooper surely knew Psalm 88 intimately. He surely had a deep connection with the psalm and knew the feelings of being swept up in the flood and seemingly left in nothing but darkness. And against this backdrop and against this personal story that he wrote these words that we're actually about to sing. Like her with hopes and fears we come to touch you if we may. Oh, send us not despairing home, send none unhealed away. And he cries out, heal us, Emmanuel, here we are. We long to feel thy touch. Deep wounded souls to thee we fly, O Savior, hear our cry. To quote another one of my student professors, Derek Thomas, I don't want there to be 16 psalms like Psalm 88 in the Psalter, but I'm glad that this one is here. And my prayer for you tonight, whether you are here as a believer and you know Jesus and you love him, that you would be able to pray this psalm and trust him in the depths of it. And I pray that if you're here tonight and you are not a believer, that this would be the thing that calls you to know this God who does work wonders among the dead, who does declare his steadfast love in forgotten places. I want you to consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, um, Yeah, that's what we got. And Father, I, I don't even really know what to pray in response to this. Other than you are the God who moves near to us. And you are near to us, even when it feels like you're not. 
So I pray for my friends here tonight, Lord. I undoubtedly, many of us hear these words and resonate with it. Lord, would you show us that you are the God who works wonders among the dead, whose faithfulness is declared in forgotten places, and who moves close to us through the person and the work of your son Jesus, and that ultimately he was the one whose life was covered in darkness so that ours would never have to be. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.